Wouldn't it be great if Christians could talk about the Bible and various issues without fighting or arguing or name-calling? Imagine if we could just sit down, have a cup of coffee, discuss, and even if we disagree, treat each other with respect. That's what this podcast is all about. Kind, loving, Christian conversations. It's not a sermon or a Bible class. It's just followers of Jesus talking about life and faith. I hope this show encourages you to have conversations like this with people in your life. I'm Wes McAdams, and I want to welcome you to the Crosstalk Podcast. Today's episode is a discussion I recently had with my friend Joshua Pappas about what will happen when Jesus returns. Many believe that the earth will cease to exist and that we'll float up to a spiritual place. However, Joshua and I take the position that the earth itself will be redeemed and restored. The biblical evidence for this position is pretty overwhelming. And even if you don't agree, I hope this helps you better understand what people mean when they refer to the new heavens and new earth. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I think that it it might be helpful for us to sort of define what we're talking about first, because uh, this is something that I've wrestled with, um, and and more recently than than I think you have. Um, so so I grew up believing that that the earth would be. Uh, just completely destroyed, and we would go off to heaven whenever Jesus comes back. Um, but the more I studied Scripture, the more I wrestled with that idea. Um, and so let's, if you would, what, how would you define what it is that we're talking about, this new heavens and new earth idea? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great question. Uh, I also grew up uh, being uh, taught and believing in the uh, uh, eventual utter annihilation of the whole physical cosmos, uh, whole physical universe. Uh, to uh, exist uh, in some form or another in a um, in in heaven, um, I was often confused as as a young person uh, because, uh, thankfully, um, where I grew up, uh, the the truth of the resurrection of the body, that is the material resurrection, was something that was taught, but. Uh, the way that that was taught and then sort of spiritualized really confused me because I can remember being probably 10 or 11, 12 years old and thinking, so, so, so what is this? So, so Jesus is gone for a while and then he comes back and raises all the dead bodily. And then uh, we sort of float up into the sky as, as he's destroying the whole physical universe. And then what happens? Do we continue to be in our material resurrected bodies or do our bodies just kind of dematerialize and become pure spirit form. And I, I could never quite get a, uh, uh, you know, a clear answer from folks, even folks who were you know, considerably, you know, well, well uh, developed and accomplished Bible students. Uh, some said one thing and some said the said another. So, you know, from, from uh, some of my earliest years, actually thinking about the resurrection and thinking about uh, our eternal state of existence, there was a lot of confusion. And, and I think even today as kind of new heavens, new earth thing has become unfortunately controversial. Even folks who, uh, they're folks who hold the view who have different, uh, opinions about different aspects of it. And of course, those who believe that, uh, teaching, uh, that, that we will spend our heavenly existence on a literal new heaven and new earth. Uh, they themselves also have some confusions about different aspects of that. So lots of stuff to think about. But, um, what I specifically mean is that, um, um, I don't know how deep to get into this to start with, but I'm just going to try to start from simple and, and we'll let it get uh, more complex if we need to. But uh, basically, I believe that the Bible teaches that uh, when Jesus returns, uh, he will set up his glorious throne and uh, he will judge all of mankind and uh, the lost will be cast out into 
a place of outer darkness, and uh, those who are saved will, in their glorified resurrection bodies, uh, be given a place and uh, a role and a function in a literal new earth that will be the place where we will live in heaven. And uh, the, the picture that uh, Revelation uh, 21 uh, gives us, Revelation 21 and 22, uh, of, of the new Jerusalem descending down out of heaven and the statement that the dwelling of God will be with man and so on uh, means that this, this veil of separation uh, between our physical existence and God's spiritual home, the heaven of heavens, which uh, I believe that barrier between the two realms or dimensions, if you will, uh, was put in place uh, following the fall of mankind in Genesis 3. Uh, and uh, I believe that will be removed and all of the material cosmos, the physical universe, the world is going to be restored, regenerated, renewed, brought into the pristine state of perfection that God originally intended for it to be brought into. And we will continue to live embodied existence in perfected resurrection bodies like Jesus's resurrection bodies uh, in that new heavens and new earth forever and ever and ever. And that is so well stated. I mean, it's amazing how precise you were. I, I shouldn't be amazed because I know that this is something you've thought about and and talked through and studied and and even taught on and written on. And so, I, I man, I appreciate how precisely you laid all of that out. And I and I'm trying to sort of put myself in the shoes of someone that may be hearing this for the first time, um, or maybe if they've heard it, they've they've only just sort of because I think about how I heard it the first time. I remember. Um, somebody saying to me, it, it hasn't been very many years ago, uh, when somebody sort of introduced this idea and they just, I mean, it was probably a comment on Facebook or something like right. that. And I just dismissed it out of hand. And I said, well, that's just ridiculous. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know where you got any of that stuff, you yeah. know? And, but now that I've, I've read not only I think what happened is sort of that seed that was planted, those sorts of ideas that you just laid out that are all deeply rooted, obviously, in Scripture, that the more I began to read the entirety of the Bible, then it was like, oh, well, it's everywhere. Like, yes. it's all throughout the whole the whole Bible. Right. Um, I don't know how I didn't see it before. But then these little, for me, it was these little texts that that kept popping up that were just, to me, obvious statements, one of which being one of the Beatitudes in Matthew yes. 5, yes. Uh, Jesus saying, the meek will inherit the earth. And I kept thinking, what did I think that meant before? Right. Like, what did I, you know, what what was I, I mean, I've read that a million times. What did I, what did I think that meant? And I, I really don't know. So when you lay all of that out, you know, I, I, I know that there's going to be some people that are listening to this that really wrestle with that and say, well, what is this Josh guy talking about? You know, where, where is all this stuff coming from? So if there are some texts that are sort of your favorite go-to texts. And, and obviously, I, I think you and I both would agree that we want to steer away from pulling one verse or two verses out right. of the context. Absolutely. Like I said, I, I think this is the story. You just laid out this narrative, this overarching narrative of all of Scripture. So, But what are some of those texts where, where you see this taught pretty clearly that somebody could go to and say, ah, oh, I never noticed that, or I didn't realize that, or I, I never put those things together. Sure, sure. Yeah, and, and I think uh, uh, I think you brought out uh, something that um, is a great observation, Wes, because uh, as you begin to think about these things, uh, you will begin to see it all over the place in Scripture where, you know, I, I think about my growth in uh, understanding of Scripture 
sort of like uh, having a, a bunch of pairs of lenses on. And, uh, you know, our worldview that basically is the lenses that we see our world and understand our world through. And by the time we're grown, I don't care who you are or how you've grown up, you've got a number of, of sets of lenses on that you are not aware of. Uh, that are assumptions that you're viewing the world and thinking about yourself through. And if you are a truth seeker, a truth seeker is not someone who says, okay, everything that I've been taught from the ground up here, that's true because all my ancestors, they wrestled with this and worked all this out and they got it all right. And so I'll never question any of that. That's what I call traditionalism. And uh, you're just uh, Mm -hmm. sort of uh, rolling the dice and hoping that your ancestors got it right. I certainly respect my ancestors, and I can say with confidence that through my own studies, most of what I was taught growing up in the Churches of Christ was and is right. Uh, But as a truth seeker, I have to always keep my mind open to the possibility that all best attentions aside, uh, somehow, some way, I've put on a pair of lenses that are causing me to uh, sort of uh, miss some things. And as I continue to think, am I bringing preconceptions into this passage? Am I reading this word with a definition that has been given to me by something other than Scripture? And continue to ask those kinds of questions. Um, And if you do, again, I don't care who you are, you're going to realize that some of the things that you grew up believing are not exactly right. And as you take those pairs of lenses off one at a time, you become more perfectly able to see the truth uh, without uh, these layers of tradition, uh, you know, hindering you from recognizing it. And that's what I think you were talking about uh, that that happens sometimes, and it's definitely happened with me on this subject. Uh, so not to belabor the point any further, I think the first thing I would suggest is that people stop uh, merely looking at the trees and back up and look at the forest and recognize that there is a trajectory. Uh, there's a direction that is set in place in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And we have to understand some basic fundamentals of the faith, and that is understand who God is and what God does and what God does not do. Now, God's foreknowledge of what will happen doesn't necessarily mean it is exactly what he would have happen in a perfect environment. It's the distinction between God's uh, sovereign will, his ultimate will, how everything in the end will turn out exactly the way God wants it to. But in the meantime, God certainly, in his uh, sovereignty and providence, allows some things to occur that are not according to his ultimate will. Sin is one of those things. And so uh, when God created the universe as he created in Genesis 1 and 2, and as it existed in the first part of Genesis 3, that is a statement of, or that is a representation of how God wanted things to be. And if God's ultimate will would have been done, and that is that sin would have not entered into creation, we ask ourselves, where would this thing have gone then? And we find nothing in that in the ancient uh, text of Genesis to even in any way uh, imply that God just intended for this to be a testing ground to scrap this thing and to do something altogether different than, than what he did uh, when he created the heavens and earth in the beginning. And so it's very important because God did not want mankind to sin. He didn't tempt them to sin. He doesn't tempt anyone to sin. He himself doesn't sin. And so if God had uh, had his ultimate way, sin would have never entered into this universe. Adam and Eve would have eaten the fruit of the tree of life, and they would have lived forever in those bodies in uh, a world that would have never been tainted by sin. Uh, They would have been able, with God's leadership and cooperation, to develop it into the paradise kind of new heavens and new earth that I think is the end project uh, that we find ourselves looking at 
uh, a symbolic representation of at the end of the book of Revelation. And so we have uh, God's original intent that is tainted by sin. It's not that God didn't know they would sin. He did. But, but you cannot say that God wanted them to sin. Uh, because that's that's absolutely uh, a violation of God's nature and God's character. And we see the whole overarching story of Scripture uh, being God's steps in uh, this comprehensive scheme of redemption uh, to rescue creation from sin and to reclaim His original intent. So the end picture of things will be exactly what God had intended from the beginning, and the devil and all the sinners that have followed Him will not be allowed to put a dent in that. It's going to end out exactly the way that God began it. The devil doesn't get to mess up God's creation so much that God is just, oh well, I have to destroy the thing. And that ultimately is Mm -hmm. kind of a sort of subtle defeat of God's plan that folks that argue against new heavens and new earth are forced to admit that they're that they're teaching. So that's very important to put it in the context of the whole overarching thing. But a few passages, and of course there are many, but uh, you have to come to terms with Isaiah chapter 66, um, and Isaiah 65 and 66. For instance, Isaiah 65, uh, verses 7 through 25 uh, Isaiah 66, 22 through 24, and this is a passage that is difficult. Uh, and I, I freely will say to all those who are hearing that it is, it is difficult because what we have uh, is a passage that speaks of new heavens and new earth, uh, but also speaks of uh, the Messianic age previous to the new heavens and new earth because we've got, you know, this the part of the passage talks about the people who are blessed to live in this age, uh, they live to be a hundred, uh, you know, women don't miscarry, you know, they have this great state of abundance and so on. And so folks come to this passage and say, look at that. This can't refer to the end of time because the end of time will, will, you know, be the inauguration of eternal life. And, and, and here in this prophecy, people are dying at a hundred uh, and they're partially correct. Uh, but if you notice the end uh, of, of the passage, uh, the end of uh, Isaiah 66, uh, for instance, um, verse, uh, verses, oh, about verse 23, 24. Or so, uh, but, uh, the prophecy says, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me for their worm shall not die. Their fire shall not be quenched and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. And, um, I think the informed reader immediately recognizes that Jesus quotes these, these words in Mark nine forty two through 48 as applying to the end of time and to those who will be cast into Gehenna. And so Jesus's perfect interpretation says at least part of the prophecy in Isaiah 65 and 66 refers to the end of time. I think responsible study and interpretation of the passage proves that part of it refers to the Christian era and is a symbolic statement about uh, the the kind of blessings that we experience in the Christian era. Without uh, belaboring that any further, I would point people to our late uh, Brother Kaufman's commentary uh, on Isaiah 65 and 66. Uh, Just read Kaufman's uh, comments on the passage, and he does a great job of showing that we have a a dual fulfillment situation. Um, I'm not going to read his quotes because, you know, folks can go look at them for themselves. Uh, but but he does a good job of showing that uh, that we have uh, um, we have uh, part of the prophecy referring to the the messianic age that we're living in right now, and part of the prophecy referring to the end result of the messianic age, and that is its culmination in judgment and new heavens and new earth. So that's one place. 
Uh, we definitely need to uh, be familiar with the passage you brought up, uh, Matthew 5, for instance. Uh, Jesus says, the meek shall inherit the earth. Uh, that's a passage that all my life has been one of those that folks kind of uh, sort of stumble their way through and, and come up with uh, some kind of, you know, symbolic, uh, you know, symbolic way to interpret that because mm-hmm. they know that based on our present observation, it is still very much the, uh, the mean who are inheriting the earth, not the meek. Uh, right. So, you know, I believe the passage means what it says, and, and, and uh, it, uh, it refers to the uh, new heavens and new earth. And I, I've got some quotations from, from folks and brother in the Churches of Christ all the way up to the mid-20th century who affirm that as well. And we could say much more. Jesus talks about uh, in uh, uh, Matthew 19, 28 through 30. He says, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, and so on. Um, The word there translated new world in the ESV is translated the regeneration in the King James Version. I would just uh, ask uh, hearers to go look up Strong's um, exhaustive, uh, you know, uh, uh, concordance and look at his uh, definition of that word regeneration. And I think that you'll see uh, what he understood that to mean. Uh, he refers to the renewal of the world to take place after its destruction by fire. And honestly, the word, the regeneration, uh, if, if people would just meditate on that word in itself, I think the ESV's use of the phrase, the new world, is uh, is, is clearly hitting on target. Um, Paul? Uh, there are numerous passages in Paul's writings, but the most important to me, I think, is Romans 8, verses 18 through 25. This is the passage that ultimately clinched it for me. When I began studying this passage carefully and noticed exactly what it, what it is saying, um, I came to the conclusion that I continue to hold today that the only uh, faithful interpretation of Romans 8, 18 through 25 is a recognition of, of new heavens and newer doctrine. Um, and I'll, I'll read a portion of that passage and say something about it. Um, you know, Paul says, beginning in verse 18 of Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So we, we need to focus here because folks really blur things in this passage, which uh, is representative, I think, of wearing some prejudicial lenses when they read it. But if we take the lenses off and are careful to just examine the passage for the creation, there's one party, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, there's a second party. So we have two parties, two um, uh, interested parties in this passage that are looking forward to uh, the culmination of things. The passage continues, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, notice what the passage says, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So the creation itself, that first party, uh, will be set free from its bondage. Now, if we hold the position that the creation itself is going to be utterly annihilated and it's going to cease to exist, if that is what the creation is hoping for, then I think folks have, have, are going to have to come to terms with the fact that uh, that the concept of hope never in Scripture anywhere else is used in reference to someone being annihilated, obliterated, or ceasing to exist. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And let me yeah, let me just kind of interrupt there for a second too, and and I'm sure you're aware of this, and and I it it seems incredibly problematic to me, but the way that I've heard those that push back against the new heavens new earth idea uh, push back on on our interpretation of this passage and say, well, creation there refers to creatures, which refers to people, which refers to non-Christians. So their interpretation of those two parties is one, the Christians, and two, non-Christians. Um, and I, I I don't know how you interpret what Paul is saying, if if that's how you, you read creation there, that he's talking about non-Christian people, non-saved people, non-children of God people. Um, then it would it would seem to be teaching sort of a universalism, which those people that are saying that would not right. affirm. Um, it would say because, as you said, their hope of being redeemed, the creation's hope. Because I don't think it's a they. I think yes. it's the the cosmos. It's the you know the entire created uh, world um, and all things that that it's longing and that that hope will be will be met. Yes. That they they will realize the thing that for which they're they're hoping. The creation will realize that. And so if you read that as non Christians, then then you have Paul saying that non Christians will be redeemed along with the children of God. And to me that that's that's a yes. word position to hold than what it is they're trying to fight against in, in what they're arguing right. against with us. And, and I'm, I'm going to say this with a, with a friendly and, and humorous uh, uh, intent, but uh, it would be easier for them just to uh, relax and accept the truth. <laughs> but uh, right, yes, right, right. because uh, you, you've got either two conclusions. I'm going to reread that sentence. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. If this is unsaved people, then either you have unsaved people waiting with eager longing to be cast into hell, or you have uh, unsaved people waiting to be saved even though they're unsaved. And it's an untenable position, no matter which way you interpret it. And so I I won't read the the rest of the passage. People have an access to to the Bible. Romans 8, 18 through 25, just read it. And I think that if you try your best to take your lenses off and just see what the passage says, uh, it says that the creation itself uh, is in a sense a sort of uh, you know humanized in this passage. Uh, it is looking forward to the, the day of redemption because it gets set free uh, from futility, just as we receiving our resurrection bodies are set free from utility from futility. And uh, and so there's there's a little bit of an illustration, a, a lesson I think that needs to be brought out here about why the world is the way that it is today. Uh, if you look at, at God's original purpose in, in Genesis 1, uh, sinless man, holy mankind before the fall, was given dominion over you know, the material cosmos to rule it in the name of God. And so God has the rulership over mankind. Mankind, as his uh, co-regents, are given uh, rule over the material cosmos. In Genesis 3, mankind sins against, rebels against the one who has the right to exercise authority over us. We rebel against God. And as a result, God subjects the creation to this futility so that it rebels against us. And so we see this uh, language throughout scripture of uh, natural disasters and famines and earthquakes and these things uh, written of as birth pains. Uh, you know, in fact, Romans 8 mm-hmm. does. But these are a way for God to use creation uh, that ought to be subjected to our authority just the way that we see it subjected to Jesus' authority, being the perfect sinless human in the Gospels. Uh, it is not functioning 
uh, in subjection to us, just as we are not functioning in subjection to God. And so I think it's an important thing for us to realize uh, that there's, there's, there's something God intends to teach us about this. And when humanity has been redeemed, and we are no longer uh, in rebellion and no longer failing to, uh, to respond to the authority of God the way that we should, then creation itself will be released from its futility to no longer rebel against us as well. In the times of you know, storms and earthquakes and volcanoes and you know, dangerous uh, ocean tides and so on will, will be no more. And I think it's what the, the passage there is talking about. And uh, just for to give additional reading, uh, Brother Moses Lard, uh, one of our brothers in the Churches of Christ uh, in the uh, 1800s, uh, his commentary on Romans is widely available. And I have never read anything better than Moses Lard's uh, comments on this passage, uh, Romans chapter 8, and that's on page 268 to 270 of Brother Moses Lard's commentary. And I, I would be willing to uh, guess that a lot of our brothers and churches of Christ that do not yet hold the new heavens and new earth position nevertheless have Moses Lard's commentary on their shelves. Uh, it, or they can also read it by PDF for free online. I know you can find it there, but I would urge uh, our hearers to just look up Moses Lard on Romans 8, and uh, he'll be able to, uh, to say some things, I think, in a very well-reasoned way uh, that make it even clearer than we have in this conversation on, on Romans 8. Uh, just maybe two more, and I'll try to make these uh, uh, briefer. Uh, but Second Peter 3, 1 through 14, of course, is a vital text uh, for those of us who believe mm-hmm. in New Heavens and Earth doctrine. Um, you know, Peter reveals uh, the details of the coming destruction. Um, and he also says that because of, of this uh, coming destruction, uh, verse 13, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, um, of course, there is uh, a textual difference. Um, you know, about whether or not uh, the works that are done on it, you know, will be exposed or whether they will be burned up. And that is one of the few legitimate uh, textual differences in which it's hard to know which was the word originally uh, that Peter wrote. Uh, but in my opinion, it's irrelevant uh, because if you look at the greater context right. of Second Peter 3, you will see that Peter kind of lays uh, 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 some groundwork for us to understand the scope of what is in view, because before we get to the the destruction of the present heavens and earth by fire, Peter uses the example of the old heavens and the earth being destroyed in the flood by water. And he uses the same language to speak about that destruction that he uses to speak about the destruction of these heavens and earth. And so just the pit, that's, that's the illustration Peter uses, not me. And so Peter says that the old world was destroyed being deluged with water. Uh, so was it destroyed or was it not? It was destroyed. Did, did that mean it mm-hmm. ceased to exist? No, not at all. And that's the groundwork that Peter lays before he starts talking about the destruction of this heavens. And this heavens and earth will be destroyed by fire. But does that mean that, that they will utterly cease to exist materially? No, I don't believe so. And I believe the promise in Second Peter 3.13 is of uh, taking those raw materials after they have been purged by fire, burned up by fire, and reorganizing them, refreshing them, renewing them, renovating them, regenerating, there's Jesus's word, uh, into mm-hmm. uh, what God would have had the heavens and earth to be eventually, originally, had mankind not sinned. Uh, and so I often call uh, the opening chapters of Genesis Eden 1.0 and the closing chapters of Revelation Eden 2.0. 
because I think yeah. that's the, the trajectory of Scripture. So there's Second Peter 3, and we can say more about that if we need to. Talk about the words naos and kainos for new. You know, that's something that hearers need to look into for themselves. Um, also, the words, uh, specifically the word for earth in, in 2 Peter 3.13 is not the word cosmos. It is the word uh, uh, transliterated gain. Uh, most would write it G-Y-N or G with a hard E, N. Uh, that is the Greek word not for just the system of things, not just for the ordered universe, but that is the word that is specifically in reference to farmland, to arable land, you know, mm-hmm. to the ground we stand on. So the promise in 2 Peter 3.13 is for a new heavens and a new ground to stand on, a new earth as we understand this present earth to be. Finally, I want to say something about uh, Revelation, of course, uh, chapters uh, 21 and 22 in particular, um, because uh, you know if you take Revelation 21 and 22, literally, case closed. Uh, but of course... Um, uh, I think most of us in churches of Christ don't uh, don't take those chapters as necessarily entirely literal, and I think we're right to recognize that uh, the whole of the Book of Revelation is symbolic. Uh, that is made uh, depending upon where you stand in your interpretation of Revelation. That's made it kind of uh, controversial as to you know how we use um, you know Revelation twenty one and twenty two in this discussion of new heavens and earth teaching. Um, but uh, let's just, uh, first of all, uh, recognize that the symbolic language pictures Judgment Day having occurred in chapter 20 and all of the wicked uh, cast into the lake of fire, and they're done and gone. And that being the case, uh, we have uh, Jesus making all things new, and uh, we have the, 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 the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, the city descending down out of heaven, and we have that statement about uh, God's dwelling with man and, and they're his people and he's their God. And we have uh, then the restoration of those things we lost in the fall. We have uh, not just the rivers that flowed out of Eden, but now we have a river of life, uh, the water of life that flows from the throne of God. Uh, and we have uh, not just a tree of life, but we have uh, you know the tree of life on both sides of the river yielding 12 kinds of fruit in its seasons. And so it, it's Eden 2.0. This is this is the uh, restoration of everything that has been lost because of sin. Now, here's the thing. Some folks interpret Revelation uh, as uh, generally, um, and I'm speaking of folks who are not uh, dispensationalist premillennialists and not even postmillennialists. I'd like to say more about that, but I will say at this point in time, I am not a premillennialist. I don't believe that premillennial interpretations of prophecy are true. There are some folks that oppose New Heavens and Earth doctrine by saying it's premillennialism, and, and that only exposes that they have not studied um, the words or the writings of those that actually hold uh, the position that I'm arguing. Um, and a lot of folks will look at the new heavens and new earth positions of some of our forefathers in the Restoration Movement, uh, particularly you've got, uh, of course, Alexander Campbell and uh, uh, Walter Scott, and uh, you've got uh, James A. Harding and, and uh, Lipscomb and you know, just it's a who's who uh, of the these restoration right. preachers. They all believe in new heavens and new earth. And people say, well, they were premillennialists. That also is not true. They were postmillennialists, which is a different thing. And uh, so folks need to study that. They need to learn the difference between premillennialism and postmillennialism. I'm neither of those things. I would love to be able to be a postmillennialist like Campbell and Harding and Lipscomb were, because I think it's a really 
hopeful and positive point of view about how things are going to turn out with this present world. Uh, but I don't believe it is the correct interpretation of Scripture. I am what uh, would be called an amillennialist. Uh, one uh, particular commentator on Revelation said he liked the term inaugurated millennialist better, and, and I do too. Mm. Uh, but I interpret mm-hmm. the millennial uh, symbol in Revelation to refer not to a literal thousand years, but to the whole of the Christian era. And so, uh, and so there's no millennialism in any of my interpretation of these passages with regard to new heavens and new earth. Uh, some folks equate uh, new heavens and earth teaching with uh, so-called Jehovah's Witnesses. I always call them so-called Jehovah's Witnesses because I don't believe that they actually are legitimate witnesses of Jehovah. No harm intended, but uh, you know, truth is intended. And nothing, of course, could be farther from the truth. Um, I have attempted to convert a number of, of so-called Jehovah's Witnesses over the years and have successfully baptized one into Christ, and I'm thankful for that. But I know very well what they teach about uh, Revelation and the rest of biblical prophecy, and it has nothing to do with what those of us in churches of Christ that have come to realize that we look for new heavens and earth are teaching or believing. So, all right, so if you if you approach Revelation from the amillennial position, which is most of us in churches of Christ, you have two schools of thought in general. One is that because uh, John is told in chapter 1 and 22 that these things are shortly to come to pass, that means that, yeah, just about everything in the book uh, pertains to those things that were shortly then to come to pass. Uh, But some of the stuff at the end of the book does, you know, refer to the end of time. A lot of our brethren interpret the book that way, and I have no problems with that. The other point of view is that because uh, John is told in chapters 1 and 22 that these things are shortly to come to pass, don't seal it up, that everything between chapter 1 and 22 was all symbolic about events that were shortly to come to pass. And by looking at the greater context of biblical prophecy, I would say within four or 500 years. That is actually the position that I hold. I believe that everything from Revelation 1 to 22 is symbolic and was written to be first interpreted as symbols of how God was going to conquer the enemies of the church, namely the Roman Empire, uh, over the course of the four or five centuries that followed uh, the time of that book's writings. And so folks will say, well, if, if everything in Revelation 21 and 22 is symbolic about the victorious church in the ancient world, and I think it is, then what could it possibly say about what is going to come at the end of time? And I would say to them, if they're asking that, that's a really great question. Um, God uses symbols to communicate truth in a way that he intends for it to be understood. The key that we need to notice in chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation is that in order to symbolize the the victorious church over persecuting Roman power, God chose to use the symbols of the end of time, of the great judgment, and of the inauguration of the eternal age. That is the symbol that God used to signify the victory of the church in the ancient world. And so if I might paraphrase what that means, this is my interpretation, it is in essence saying to the ancient church, those of you who keep the faith, who endure all the sufferings that are going to come upon you because of heathen persecution, when that moment comes, when that heathen persecuting power has finally been you know, fully and finally dealt with and will not be a, a persecuting power of the church again, it's going to be like you're in heaven. It's going to be like you're in the new heavens and new earth. That's how much of a weight is going to be lifted off of your shoulders. And so in, in conveying that meaning, God uses 
what literally will happen at the end of time as a way to symbolize how it felt to experience the legalization of Christianity uh, in the time of Constantine and how much of a breath of fresh air that was to the ancient church. And so I would answer folks who would criticize, saying, oh, that's all symbolic. It refers to the victory of the church, not the end of the time. I would say that they're, in this case, uh, maybe missing the trees for the forest rather than missing the forest for the trees. And I hope that makes sense to folks. And uh, so those are some passages that I would definitely want people to deal with uh, in, in order to, to understand what we're trying to communicate. Yeah, I think that's incredibly helpful. And I and I, I keep thinking, in addition to these passages, I keep thinking of the passages that, that kept coming into my mind as I sort of wrestled with these thoughts and these questions when people first posed these to me. There were certain passages that popped in my mind, and I thought, well, what they're saying, that, that we're going to live— in a world in which heaven and earth are united and and where it's renewed um, and we're going to literally live on on this planet um, although it be changed I, I thought that can't be true because of and these passages kept coming to my mind one of the ones that came to my mind um, and that I often hear others argue as sort of a proof text would be John right. 14 um, so Jesus says that that it, it seems to say that Jesus is going to come and that in his father's house are many rooms and that he's going to take us to go with him there. Um, and so there's, it seems to be, at least when you read it with the, with the mindset that many of us have, um, when you, when you read it that way, that, that Jesus is going to come here and then he's going to take us there. And so the idea that we're going to stay here, uh, seems to be at odds with that. So how would you, how do you read John 14 and how, how, how does that make sense in light of sure, what we're saying here? question. And I, I would agree that John 14, uh, verses 4 through 6 specifically, is the passage that is most often cited uh, and interpreted as speaking against uh, New Heavens and New Earth doctrine. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we understand uh, where we stand today in, in history with, you know, relation to this passage that uh, Christ has now gone. Uh, to be with the Father. He's mm-hmm. presently in heaven with the Father. But we do know he's coming back, um, and that is promised to us. I, I would refer uh, hearers to uh, Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 3, I think beginning in somewhere around verse verse uh, 19, uh, where he says, um, you know, that he, he's preaching repentance, and he says, repent and turn again, uh, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may proceed from the presence of the Lord, and then he may send for you Jesus. And then he uses this phrase, whom heaven must receive until. And I, and I would urge folks to recognize that there is looking forward to a Jesus coming back and no longer being received out of their sight by heaven in, in, in the end time. And so I think this is what John 14, 4 through 6 is saying as well. You know, Christ Jesus is presently in heaven with the Father, but he's coming back uh, to uh, the new earth specifically, and when he does, uh, God is going to remove the curtain between earth and heaven due to sin uh, that was symbolized by the veil in the temple and it was torn from top to bottom when Jesus laid down his life. Uh, and I think it refers to, you know, what we just talked about in Revelation 21 and 22. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place. And if I go and prepare a place, I'll come again. And I think this uh, should be compared to Revelation 21 and 22. He's coming again, and he's bringing his reward with him. And he will lower the prepared place from heaven, just as it's pictured in the book of Revelation. 
so, you know, I, th- I think the whole picture eschatologically goes like this. Jesus returns from heaven. He sets up court, just as Matthew 25, 31 says. Uh, humanity stands before his throne to be judged, and Christ draws the faithful to him uh, to serve him in his inheritance. And his inheritance is the whole renewed universe. Each person finds a place in God's house that has been specifically prepared for him or her, and that is God's dwelling place, maybe the new Jerusalem, the city itself. I don't know how that's going to work. But uh, folks, I believe, are committing uh, a false dichotomy. Uh, you know, they're, they're making the either-or fallacy mistake when they look at John 14, 4 through 6. They're saying either we will live in new, new heavens and new earth or we will go to heaven, and it's not an either-or thing. I believe right. that we will live in heaven forever. The question is, where? And I think Scripture teaches we will live in heaven on a new earth because the veil that separates this material cosmos from a visible and physical, uh, you know, literal interaction with heaven is going to be taken away. And so it's not that, that heaven is some other place that you can head off in a, in a set direction and go to. Um the Bible writers didn't, I don't think, had the word dimension like we had today, and that word's been popularized by science fiction. But, I mean, it's it's a good word to represent what I think the biblical picture of how the various realms overlap. You know, we have the material universe, but you get a rocket ship, and it doesn't matter which direction you go from the earth. You can't go far enough to get to heaven because that's not the way it works. It's here. Mm-hmm. It's just inaccessible to us. Uh, these realms overlap. Uh, heaven is God's uh, throne room and the earth is footstool. And that's a symbol to say that God is in both places. So the key is not going to heaven, so to speak, but uh, having the curtain torn in two that separates us from experiencing heaven. And we will experience heaven on a new earth. And I, I don't see anything in John 14, 4 through 6 that, uh, that has to be interpreted to refute that. And if it is a passage that we find the language to be somewhat difficult, I used to find it more difficult than I do now just because of the lenses I was wearing, um, it it certainly cannot be interpreted to refute very clear passages like Romans 8, 2 Timothy 3, etc. The old rule of interpretation is to interpret a difficult passage in light of of an easy one or an easier one or a simple one. And, uh, you know, Romans 8 says what it says, 2 Peter 3 says what it says, uh, you know, Revelation 21, 22 properly interpreted, say what they say. Isaiah 55, uh, 65 and 66 say what they say. Jesus makes the promises that he makes, etc., etc., etc. There's nothing in John 14 that needs to be interpreted to contradict any of those passages. Right, and 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 I think, and we always have to ask ourselves, you know, what what point is being yes. made there? And he, and it's all about the fact that we're going to be with the Lord, that 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 we're going to be in the Father's house, and that there's room for all of Jesus' disciples in yes. the Father's house. And so, to make it uh, an issue of where, quote unquote, you know, up there or down here, so to speak, is to misunderstand the whole, the, not only the whole picture and the whole story, but also what Jesus is saying in the immediate context. And and I and I. Love what you said about heaven and earth, and and understanding that veil, that separation between. I like to think of it as the seen realm, you know, the things yes. that we can see, and then the unseen realm, the things that we can't, and that there's this veil in between, and that that's what the coming of Christ is going to do is ultimately remove that veil, and so that everything is seen, everything right. is 
exposed. Um, everything is is revealed, and that's how the biblical writers uh, tended to talk about it. I think, especially the Hebrew writer talks about it um, as the revealing of these things. And so, when Paul or other writers would use language that would say your reward is in heaven, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to go there to get it. It just means that it's it's there. It's behind the veil, and that on the last day, that veil will be removed, and and all of those things, including Christ Jesus himself and the Father and and all the, the heavenly city, all things will be revealed and, and our reward will be given to us that is now being reserved for yes, us in heaven. That's exactly right. Uh, so another passage, and and I recently heard a discussion, and you know, and good brothers, and you know, and I appreciate the fact that people are discussing this this topic. And um, it was funny, my my name got drugged through the mud uh, in this discussion that these guys were having. Um, I don't really know how I became a representative of of the new heavens, new earth idea, um, but uh, but for whatever. <laughs> what what'd you say? Company. I'm sorry, <laughs> yeah. Well, I yeah, I, I there's a lot of you that that represent it better than I do. So, um. But, but they were discussing this idea, and for them, 1 Thessalonians 4.17 came up, and that was really the only text that they used. In fact, they they treated it like uh, it was a slam dunk, that, that that's all there was to say about it, because Paul says that we'll be caught up together with the Lord, we'll meet him in the air, and we'll always be with the Lord. It says that we'll meet him in the clouds, and we'll always be with him. So therefore, it settles it. We're going to heaven. The earth is gone. And so that for them was a slam dunk, and and it's essentially that was the only text they really examined uh, during their discussion. Uh, but it was very limited to that one text, and it really didn't even dive into how you and I, I think, would would read that passage. So what would you say in response to a First Thessalonians four seventeen yes, argument? Yes, uh, that's that's another uh, important one to deal with. Um, well, first of all, uh, you know, the old saying, what proves too much proves nothing at all, uh, because I don't right. think any of those who oppose New Heaven's New Earth teaching believe that the air or the clouds is heaven, uh, you know, because right. all that passage says is that when Jesus comes, you know, the saved, uh, whether brought with him and, and then reunited with their, with their bodies or raised up from the graves, uh, you know, wh- whatever, or those that are alive on the earth caught up, all the saved are going to be in the air with Jesus in the clouds. Uh, that that's all it says. Uh, so where they go from there is 100 uh, percent going to be supplied by the interpretation of the reader. Uh, so when right. someone comes to that passage and, and, and says what you've in, in essence said, well, that, that's it, that that settles it. They are failing to recognize that they have already defined what that means before they've come to the text, because the text doesn't say then they go to heaven. It doesn't say that. Right. It says they're caught up to be with the Lord in the air. That's all it says. So when you say, and that means they're in heaven, we know the air of this universe, the clouds of this universe are not the heaven of heavens, God's throne. They're not the same places. So when they interpret that passage to say that the material cosmos will be annihilated from existence and we will go to heaven, they are doing just as much, uh, at least just as much supplying of information, eisegesis into the text as they accuse new heavens and new earth people to be doing. Uh, I believe, as consistent with uh, the other passages we've talked about and many that we haven't talked about, that Jesus does, in fact, return, first of all, in the air. All the saved will be caught up to be with him in the air, and that this is consistent with the practice of the way a city would welcome a visiting dignitary, especially a king, in the ancient world. And we see it demonstrated uh, in Jesus' triumphal entry. 
you know, whenever a king or a dignitary was coming to the city, the city didn't just sit and wait and say, oh, I'll, I'll just watch you come to me. That's not the way things were done. They would go out into the road uh, along the countryside to cheer on and welcome the dignitary into the city. That was the appropriate customary way uh, to welcome one in, in the ancient world. And it's similar to what folks do today. If the president goes on a tour, uh, you will see people lining the highways and byways into their city and waving flags and welcoming the president of their city if they know he's coming. Uh, and so I think this is the idea that, uh, and of course, this is this is me just trying to understand uh, the ancient context. And I can't prove that this is the idea, but I think this is the idea that uh, Jesus is coming back and his faithful people uh, go out of the city, so to speak, to welcome him and escort him back in the city in glory. And uh, But bottom line, all the passage says is that Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, all the saved will be caught up to be with him in the air. And it says, we will from that point forward forever be with the Lord. But it does not say where. And so you cannot use 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 in an honest way to refute new heavens and new earth teaching. Yeah. And it was it was incredibly helpful to me to look at the other times that that word meet is used in, in Scripture. Uh, there's only a couple other times that it, that exact words, the related words, like you said, triumphal entry, or maybe even when um, uh, Mary goes out to to meet Jesus when he's coming to to see them after Lazarus's mm-hmm. death. Um, uh, but also in Matthew chapter 25 and verse six, um, in, in Jesus's parable about the 10 virgins, yes. uh, he says, but at midnight there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom come out to right. meet him. Um, and, and there's no idea, you know, I think meet in English, our English word meet is really, uh, just sort of vague. It just means, you know, two people come together, you know, they, they, they see each other. Um, but, but this, particular word, as you pointed out, really carries with it the idea of welcoming a dignitary or somebody important, in this case, a bridegroom. Um, the same word is used in Acts for Paul. Uh, people would go out and meet him. The, it's the idea of welcoming somebody important, a king or a bridegroom or a, a missionary, a dignitary, into yeah. their city. Um, so, And yes, I mean, there is an assumption there, but I, I think if we'll read First Thessalonians 4 in the context of the entire uh, narrative of Scripture, we see that that's exactly what's going to happen when Jesus yeah. comes, is that we will welcome him, we'll welcome our coming king uh, to bring in this this final age, the new age, uh, the the new heavens and the new earth. So let's let's sort of wrap up, and we only have a couple minutes, but and I wish we had more time for this, because I think that some people will we'll hear this discussion and they'll say, you know what, Wes, Josh, you've got a point. I see what you're saying. I can sort of see that in scripture, but then again, I see the other side of it and they'll sort of see both sides and they'll think, well, you make a good point, but I don't want to mess with it. I don't want to think about it. I, I, in fact, it seems to be kind of controversial. I don't know why you're bringing this up. Why does it matter? And I think that's a, a legitimate question. I think to me, it matters a lot. Um, and I do think it's worth talking about, but I'm curious to hear why do you think that that it matters, and and why is this an important discussion to have? Um, well, that's a, that is a great question, and and let me answer that in two ways. Uh, first of all, let me say, um, I believe that fundamental to fellowship, fundamental to faith, is belief in the literal resurrection of Christ and in His likeness, the literal resurrection of all the dead, and their judgment 
and of a re eternal rewards and punishment. I think those, those are doctrines that are fundamental to the faith. If someone comes to me and they believe, yes, Jesus is coming again, he's going to raise all the dead and he's going to judge them and the rewards will be eternal and punishment will be eternal. That's that I can, I can fellowship even if I disagree with the details. And, uh, and I wish everyone saw things in the same way, uh, because I think that that is what the Bible requires of us uh, for in order to be on good terms as brothers and sisters in Christ. And I don't believe that the Scripture requires much more, if any more, than that. And so it is important to say that, um, you know, we, we, uh, we need to recognize that all of us are in different places of our learning process and our spiritual growth. And we also need to realize that every one of us, every one of us are wrong about something. And if you cannot say, well, if, you, if anyone says, well, I'm not wrong about anything, I've worked it all out, that, that is a dangerous individual. And uh, so yeah. that being the case, we all need to, to trust, unless proven otherwise, that our brothers and sisters in Christ are sincere seekers of Jesus and lovers of truth that are trying to get things right. And if we don't exactly see things the same way, if it doesn't violate the core fundamentals of the faith, you know, let's be patient with each other. And let's respect For each sure. other. And so those listening, whether they agree with me or they disagree, I would just put that admonition on them and, and pray to God that they would be able to receive it uh, in love and in forbearance and with an open mind. And so this discussion can be had in a brotherly way, uh, not in a divisive way. But now, secondly, uh, as to the importance, first of all, truth is important, even if a particular truth is not fundamental to the faith, even if it's not something someone has to understand to be saved. Um, I like to say things this way. Uh, not every error will cost you your soul, but every error has a consequence. And it will affect the way that you understand yourself and the world. It will affect uh, how you think of your behavior ethically uh, and, and so on. Uh, so truth is important. And, uh, and I think when we recognize, I'm firmly convinced that the things that, that I've communicated regarding new heavens and earth are true. I believe that, that it's painfully obvious truth if, if we start to try to take our lenses off and look at the text. I think that it makes a lot of sense um, of the great questions that so many human beings have had over the history of you know, why did God make the world this way? Why is the world the way that it is? What, what is God going to do about this? How is God going to fix this? Uh, the kinds of, of questions that saying, well, this, 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 this life is just a testing ground, and then God's just going to destroy it all, and we're going to go to heaven or hell. If that's true, fine. Uh, but I don't believe that that is. I believe that's a vast oversimplification of things, and I don't believe that it represents the truth well at all. And there are a lot of people that that just that doesn't answer the deep yearning they have for an answer that makes sense. And I think when you look at the overarching story of Scripture and you recognize that that the big story is like a gigantic Exodus story. I think Exodus is kind of a microcosm of what is God is doing with a whole of the cosmos, the whole of the human family in a way. Uh, God is our rescuer. God has a plan in place to fix everything that was broken and not to give us some kind of uh, ethereal life that we can't even comprehend, uh, but to give us a perfect version of the life that he made us to enjoy. And that is a spirit-filled embodied existence on a beautiful paradise world. But this time, 
his presence among us restored as it was in Genesis 3 when we see it was God's practice to come and walk with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. Uh, this, this rescue motif, um, the fact that we, we love to, uh, you know, we just, we love to enjoy this, uh, this nature that God has given us. And it, it seems so strange to so many people to think, well, this is just, this is just kind of a, uh, a scrap project, you know, that doesn't make sense mm-hmm. to people. And so that we could mm-hmm. also get it, you know, some folks take this into an environmentalistic area. I don't really take it there, but I, but I do believe that recognizing that God did not ultimately intend the material cosmos just to be a, you know, wad up and throw away project. It, it does renew our, the importance of us understanding that we need to be stewards of these bodies and of the material cosmos and and because God gave us the objective to to rule it and that was his original purpose for us and so I mean there's so many ways we can talk about it as being important uh, but if, you know whether we're talking ethics or we're talking understanding and making sense of God's plan which I think this does uh, you know or whether we're talking about uh, in, you know taking care of the environment or whatever we could talk about a lot of individual Uh, applications, ethical situations, whatever. But bottom line is, I think it's right. I think it's the truth. And and truth matters. And that's really, if I'm going to go on record, uh, the only answer that that I care to give. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, I want to share with you two ways that you can help support what we're trying to do. The first is by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast to help others discover the show. The second way you can help is by checking out Logos Bible Software. Logos has partnered with us to give our listeners a great discount. So go to radicallychristian.com slash Logos, L-O-G-O-S. I think you'll love the software and you'll get a great discount by using that link. As always, I love you, God loves you, and I hope you have a wonderful day.